It was a burning itch. That's what he woke up to. It was right here on his cheek. It burned hotter and hotter as the hours went by. As he sat there, not really sitting, actually laying there, staring at the roof. He wanted to scream about it after a while. But for many people would be not even a thought as we'd scratch it and it would go away. But for him became torment as the hours passed by. As inside of him, in his mind, there was a voice screaming about this itch. You see, this young man has experienced something called locked-in syndrome. This man was fully aware and fully conscious in a body that wouldn't respond to him. And at most he could do is stare up at the roof of his hospital room. He spent a year and a half struggling at different stages of being locked inside of his own body. When asked in his recovery, how did you stay sane? He responded and said, I don't think I did. Because there were times when he was locked in his body, there was things like an itch that would drive him crazy. It would be something that would occupy his mind for the rest of the day until it would go away. As this man was locked into his body, essentially paralyzed, he would constantly have people coming into his room and lifting him and moving him and cleaning him and bathing him and tending to his, his IVs. And if it wasn't an itch one day, the other day it was a wedgie. Or it was a sock that was biting into his ankle. You see, there was a point where nobody even thought he was inside. Many thought he was in a coma, never to awake again, that he was on the brink of death. He would have people come into his room and talk to him. And that was, it was a sweet relief to have another human voice come in and comfort and reassure. Soft words like, hey, buddy, we miss you. No, other times, days where he would hear nurses walk in and they would talk about him like he was a slab of meat. They would complain and they'd say, can't wait till we can free up this bed for somebody who needs it. Can't believe this druggie is costing us money. You see, what he was suffering from was, was toxic leukoencephalopathy. You see, this young man had been a drug addict. He had done heroin for a few years prior to his, his illness, and it just took one time, drugs cut with something toxic that absolutely destroyed his mind. Everything that he had learned in his young, in his young life, in the 20 years, everything from how to give a high five, 
how to walk, how to eat on his own. Any word, any kind of thing his brain had worked this long to develop and refine, any motor skill was absolutely decimated to the point where he couldn't talk or move. And for many, many months, nobody even believed he was alive inside. At one point, he, he defined an interesting situation that would happen in his mind. Because whenever his, they would open up his eyes and they would tend to his eyes, they would put eyedroppers in there to make sure that his eyes were being moistened. And whenever they would open his, his eyes, he'd be able to see his room. And all he could ever see was the top of his, of his, right above his bed, the ceiling. But he said that there would be moments where he'd feel his body, his, 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 his sight lift out of his body, and he would be floating above himself, looking at the room. And in this weird phenomenon, although he knew in his mind all he could see was the ceiling, it felt like he was floating above the whole room. He could see people sitting in the chair that were talking to him. He could see his, his nurses coming in and out of the room. It was something that his mind was doing in his extraordinary circumstance to help him cope, to help him feel present. He couldn't explain the amount of torture and darkness that came with being alone in his own mind. A desire to be seen, to be treated like a human, to talk to somebody. It had gone on so long that there were two voices in his head, both of his own, as he began to talk to himself about anything and everything for hours and hours to pass the time. He would describe it as almost like a mental health vacation where you are forced to work with every issue in your mind and face every traumatic thing that has ever happened to you to come to grips with your life, to be forced alone with your thoughts for hours as they melt away. And he couldn't describe the spike in hope that he had when he began to receive just moderate control of his body. It started with a twitch of the right wrist. It's a small movement. A movement that although he could force himself with every ounce of his mind to do, he couldn't do consistently. When the nurse first saw it, she warned the doctor and said, Doctor, I think he's in there. And at first they exclaimed it away. It's just, it's just his brain firing. It's an unconscious motion. But then it was his eyes. He could blink his eye. And there became a point where he'd communicate by blinking his eyes and he could stick out his tongue. And it grew and it grew and they realized that he was in there. That he wasn't just a body laying on a table. And so they began to work with him. They gave him machines that he could communicate with non-verbally. Where he could spell out letters and he began to talk. And they realized there was a person inside there. A person that had been listening all along, that had been lonely for a year and a half as they struggled with being locked away. This man's name was Jacob. And he began to recover, and more and more every single day and every single month, 
And as the time passed by, he posted a video of his recovery. He had taken a ball on a peg and he moved it out and he put it in a different peg. It was a video of him in physical therapy as he began to learn all of the things many of us take for granted. How to use words, how to talk, how to feed himself, how to sit up in his own bed. And it's hard to watch somebody struggle that much. But when they ask him, how do you do it? He exclaims that he's just so happy to be alive. So, but so happy to have the chance to be something more than locked away in his own body. To have a voice as limited as it is. To have autonomy as fractured as it is. You see, for Jacob, his recovery is going to be lifelong. He'll never be the same, but he will have a life. A life that he describes as filled with more joy and peace than the life he had before. A life of understanding. In our sermon series about the 12-step program, recovery is a huge theme. Recovery is the point. And so as we step into our next step in our sermon series, step 10, we recognize that recovery is actually a lifelong thing. It's something that follows us everywhere we go. When we started this sermon series, we had a question. What would church look like if it was done like a 12-step program? See, 12-step programs are unique. And that it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've gone down the rabbit hole of brokenness. When you come into an, uh, an AA meeting, an NA meeting, an EDA meeting, any meeting, you're welcome. Like a brother, like a sister, welcome, friend. Have a seat. Take your time. Share when you're ready. We're here for you. See, the power of this movement is that as you work these steps, as you come to each step and, and you're challenged to grow and recover and become healed emotionally, spiritually, physically, each step of the way, they're meeting you each step of the way. There is no shame in not being at the next step. There is no ridicule for, for recovering at age 12, 15, age 18, age 30, age 50. There's a joy to be there and help each other with recovery. And you could be in recovery for years and have success and decades could pass. And life could hit you really hard and you relapse after 30 years of sobriety. And you come back in and the first thing you get isn't ridicule, isn't mocking, isn't shame. It's welcome. Welcome back. And we know that people don't always experience this with church because people are scared of church. People are scared of walking through the door. They're scared of being judged, of being shamed. And so we wanted to look at church like a 12-step program. And so we, got, we went through the steps. And our first step was we are powerless to admit our brokenness. We are powerless, to, we are powerless over our brokenness. And the first step is realizing that we have a problem, that we are broken, that we can't fix it, and we need someone else. 
And step two is recognizing that there's got to be something bigger. There has to be God who can restore me. And that's step two. Step one and two puts those things together. My helplessness, God's restorative power, and we ask him and we turn our lives over to him and we say, God, we know you can do it. We know I can't do it. Step three is saying, God, help me do it. Step four is where we take the pen to paper. We make a searching and and fearless moral inventory and we say, God, help me sift through myself. Help me understand the brokenness that led me to where I am now. And the following step is to admit that brokenness to somebody, to God, and to ourselves. Step six and seven is being prepared and asking God to help remove our defects, our shortcomings. It's the moment where we say, God, I am clay and you are the potter. Work on me. Change me. Mold me. Step eight and nine, we did last week. That's where we make a list. We look at the brokenness and the hurt that it's caused, the ripples that it's caused in our life. Everyone that's been affected by it. And we write their names down and we write what we've done to them. And then the step after that is going out and making amends. Despite our own need for, for our own injuries, we go out and we amend with those that have potentially hurt us. We don't demand forgiveness. We don't demand an apology. We attempt to restore a relationship. And the power of moving through step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine is that in that process, we're given tools. We're, we're, we're learned to wield forgiveness like a weapon of healing. We're given perspective. We recognize that we are broken. We can't fix it. And we need God to do it. And we take that into every challenge of our life. I need God to help me. Throughout the whole process, you never do it alone. You have sponsors and people that you, you sponsor that you help. And all along the way, you're taught that we can't do this alone. We need each other. We need support. Every step along the way trains us to look at this world in a healthier and manageable way. And so by the end of step nine, if we had gone through them all, we would have experienced about everything the 12-step program could offer us. Because we leave behind the sequential steps, the things that need to be done in order, and we grasp onto step 10, which is the beginning of what some would call the infinite step. The infinite steps. And that's because, well, let's go ahead and read step 12. No, step 10. Step 10 is we continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. We continue to take personal inventory and when we're wrong, promptly admitted it. Beginning of the infinite steps. With this step, we recognize that, that recovery is a lifelong thing. That working the steps in the meetings is powerful and they help us grow and they teach us amazing things. But there will be a point where we have to intentionally 
in our every days for the rest of our life continue to recognize our wrongs. You see, the power of step 10 is that it actually takes from step four, five, eight, and nine. It builds off of everything that it has before, and it combines it into one step that says, keep doing what we taught you. Keep doing the things that we did together. There's a little bit of, a, of, a, of an issue and a challenge with, with the idea of infinite steps. It's because when we enter recovery, whether spiritual or sobriety, there's a desire to want to have arrived. There's a desire to want to have finished. There's a desire to want to, to, to be well and just not worry about it anymore. We want a doctor's note with a clean bill of health. Well, there's a reason why we say, I am an alcoholic in AA meetings. There's a reason why they say it in almost every AA meeting. And it reminds us that it doesn't matter what step we are along the way, addiction follows us. Addiction follows us, and it'll never let us go. We kind of adapted it for this sermon series. And if you don't know my name, my name is Pastor Bernie, and I'm a sinner. You see, when, when facing recovery, there's a harrowing statistic that we have to face. And that's between 50 and 90% of people who deal with recovery, whether from addiction, alcoholic addiction, or narcotic use, there's a 50 to 90% chance of relapsing. And I'll tell you this, if we look at the 12-step programs through the Christian perspective, there's about a 100% chance of sinning after we've become a Christian. I'll say that one more time. There's a 100% chance of sinning after we've become a Christian. And so how do we do it? How do we face Christ or even, even sobriety? knowing that we're almost assuredly going to fail again. How do we do it? Well, there's this particular scripture that I want to point to. Because the Bible reminds us that this is important as well. It says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way to escape that you can endure it. I'm going to say something in church that we don't always hear. And to be honest, I think we should hear more. We will sin. We will sin again. And we will sin again and again and again throughout our Christian lives. As close as we come to God, there will never be, I don't think, a week or a day where we don't think something broken or do something broken. And that's the plight that we have as being human. Do you want to know the one primary, one of the biggest reasons for people relapsing in their sobriety? 
It's unhealthy expectations. The first one is the expectation we put on ourselves in sobriety. It's to never relapse again or hurt the people that we've hurt so many times before again. And that simple expectation of never failing again can be such a great stressor that it can be the very reason why somebody relapses. If I will inevitably eat relapse, why try? If I'm just going to break it all again. The other expectation is that just because we've done the right things, that we've gone through the 12-step programs, or this because that we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, and now we've been healed of our addiction and or our sin, we look at the world and we say, everything's going to be okay now. Life's hard, guys. Life's real hard. Even with the... Even, even after recovering from addiction, even being a Christian, life is hard and we will fail. Now, that's not the most encouraging thing to say, but it's important for us to hear, and I'll tell you why. And it's the last reason. If we don't ever expect to fail again, when we absolutely do fail, it'll be the most devastating and shameful event of our life. It'll be something that keeps us from ever seeking help again. And this is what we face in churches. We feel the expectation for righteousness so high that we're willing to make that the picture we paint to the people around us, despite the reality of our sin and our brokenness. In John 2, verse 1 through 2, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But anyone who does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin and not for ours only. There is the hope and the goal for righteousness as, as Christians. And this word righteous is an interesting word. We don't hear it everywhere, but it's the idea of living a right life. Living a Christ-centered life. Living a life without sin. And we're called to that. We're called to, just like in AA, we're called to step away from our addiction. And we're called to leave it so far behind that we never touch it again. When we come to Christ... He accepts us for who we are, and he forgives us, and he loves us. But he says, that sin stuff has got to go. And we're going to work on it together, but it's got to go. And John writes, and he's talking to his brothers and sisters in Christ, people that he has loved and he has cared for. He has been a sponsor to these people, so to speak. And he calls them with as much love and endearment as he can. He says, my little children. My children, don't sin. But if you do, you have an advocate. An advocate is somebody who fights on your side, who defends you in court, somebody who lays down their life for you. And who is the person who lays down your life for you? It's Jesus. You have an advocate with God the Father, and it's Jesus.
We have a new life that we're called to live in our continuance in Christ, one filled with love and joy and peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, forgiveness, and self-control. And so there's a powerful lesson here. We will sin. But we don't let our brokenness keep us broken. As I close our sermon and we move into communion, I want to look back at Jacob for a moment. For someone who understood how viscerally complete brokenness in body and isolation felt, there was nothing standing in the way of him striving for recovery. Every small setback paled in comparison to the joy of having a future. Every new skill, every small victory for that man was being reminded that life was worth it. And there are two things as I close this sermon. There are two things that sobriety and faith have in common. And there are things that we can learn from this man's journey. And that's recovery isn't about perfection, but a resiliency to not stay broken. And that's not something we do alone. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are so blessed to have the opportunity to live together, to worship together, to experience life together, Lord God. I ask that you would help us learn about grace, the grace to be able to understand that when we fail, it's not the end of the world. When we sin, it's not, it's not the end. But it is in sin and the things that we do wrong that we have an opportunity to correct our wrong, to turn back to you, to confess to one another, and find that road that you have paid for us. Lord Jesus, be with us as we go about our week, as we go into communion and offering. Bless our steps, the steps that lead us to you. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.